0: Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Into the
1: Spotlight. I'm Ryan. And I'm Morley. Our guest today is a chef who has 12 years of professional cooking experience, some of those years in Michelin star restaurants. He is now working as a private chef and has just started a chocolate company, which I'm really excited to talk about. Without further ado, please welcome Chef Chris Parnell. Hey, Chris, uh, welcome to the show.
2: Hey Morley, thanks. Hey Ryan, thanks for having me on the show. Stoked
0: to no be problem. here. Thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so, for the listeners, I met Chris when I was working a couple summers ago at this amazing place in the Canadian Rockies called Lake O'Hara Lodge, where Chris had worked a few years before me. But the way things worked out, he wasn't working there that summer. But you know, we overlapped a little bit. We had some we had some fun drunken nights together. Um, some manual labor together, you know, all the normal things that builds a relationship quickly. And, um, yeah, now he's doing all this private chef work, just started a chocolate company. So Chris, what is, what is the story of how you got to what you're doing now?
2: Thanks Morley. Yeah. I mean, it's been kind of a crazy story, I guess, like most stories, but, um, Basically, I moved to Canada with my family when I was seven from the UK, from London, where they were both uh, police officers in central London, and they wanted a better life. And they, the Calgary Police Service was hiring recruiting from the UK, so they uh, jumped on the bandwagon and hopped over here. So I feel like that, just having that happen at such a young age, kind of gave me this idea that you can kind of just do anything, I guess. If you're allowed to just move countries, you can, you know, my parents are very much like, you can really just do anything. So growing up through (laughs) high school, I worked in kitchens. I was a dishwasher when I was 13 at a golf club that we uh, lived next to and kept cooking. And it was time to kind of, I was doing the academic route and it was time to, apply to universities and I was wanting to maybe work for parks Canada or something in the outdoor industry mm-hmm. um, university kind of related uh, biology. And after much thought, I was like, wait a minute, like, could I just keep cooking? Is this allowed? Like, is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> I remember talking to my, um, the uh, student guidance counselor at our school who was helping all the grade 12s, like or grade 11s, I think, even at the time, like figure out what they wanted to do. And I was like, I think I want to like go to cooking school, and she looked at my like grades and my report card, and we're like, "Well, you have the grades for, to go to university. Why the heck would you go to cooking school? Like, it just logically doesn't make sense." I was like, "Yeah, but like fun or passion or you know, all the fun <laughs> so, I
0: like it. <laughs> yeah,
2: my parents were a, a supportive of me becoming a chef, but they really wanted me to go to school and get my red seal as a journeyman cook. So I went that route because of them. And I'm super grateful that they kind of pointed me in that direction because a lot of cooks just learn from mentors, like a, you know, like a lot of things. But uh, having that Red Seal ticket has opened up a lot, a lot of doors for me now. So,
1: so what exactly is that? It's like a cross-board certification so you can cook in different kitchens and they know you're a certain standard.
2: Totally. Canada has 52 Red Seal trades. So electricians, huh. plumbers, hairdressers. There's one for, um, there's one for, they just call it, uh, I think they just call it culinary arts, but there's also pastry arts. So they divide it into two. Um, Interesting,
0: huh?
1: Yeah. Cool. So you got the Red Seal, and then from there, how did your your professional at that point cooking journey kind of take shape?
2: Well, it's funny, actually, I... There's kind of two ways to do your Red Seal. You can be an apprentice for three years or you can do full-time school for two years and then be an apprentice for one year. And that's what I did. And I did my apprenticeship hours at Lake O'Hara with Jessica Collins, who was the chef there. So it was kind of like – and it was a very kind of transformative time in my life where I was so focused on this high-end kind of the, uh, the the, the restaurant culture and the kind of like you work really hard and you get paid really bad but like it's worth it because you're more passionate than anybody else. And then when I worked at Lake O'Hara, it's like, wait a minute, you can like work eight hours, work really hard, get paid pretty well, and have like an awesome work-life balance. <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> this bad is unheard idea. of. Yeah, yeah, this is unheard like, of. It's a culture shock. <laughs> Major culture shock, yeah. So I did two years at Lake O'Hara after I got, I got my red seal there, and I did another year there, um, which was great experience learned you know a lot about cooking and then i decided it was time to kind of move on and i had this idea in my mind ever since i was young that no matter what i wanted to do i wanted to go for the top like no matter what it was if i was going to be a biologist or chef i wanted to really do it well there's no point half-assing anything so i had this idea in my mind and in the cooking world like michelin stars are at least they used to be that things are changing a little bit now, but they were anything anybody ever wanted. That was the best of the best was Michelin for sure. So I learned pretty quick that these Michelin restaurants in London and in Europe will hire cooks that have very little experience. Uh, a lot of them won't pay you, but there's kind of this just idea that you're going to come and learn. Oh, wow. So we don't <laughs> need to pay you. It's Interesting. Called, yeah. It's, it's called doing a stage. It's changing a bit more now where restaurants are wanting to pay cooks. Because they're working, you know, <laughs> pretty hard for you in the end, and there's just some changes happening in the industry. But I mean, back in the day, in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, in France, and Europe, like, a lot of cooks, a lot of restaurants had a lot of cooks that weren't getting paid. But we're learning a lot,
0: you know.
1: Wow, I never knew that. No.
0: it's uh, It sounds like in uh, film production, like, you know, there's a the production assistance. They don't necessarily get paid or paid a lot, but they're running around doing the odd jobs with, like, the not hope. Not necessarily the promise, but, like, the hope and the maybe expectation of moving up in the system somehow. So, it's interesting that in the culinary industry, it's similar that way, or it, or it was.
2: Yeah, totally. There's definitely a pay your dues mentality. I remember when I graduated from, I went to SAIT in Calgary, the South Alberta Institute of Technology. They got a great culinary program. And one of my instructors, I remember right towards the end when they were like giving out advice for you know new grads was like, you got to pay your dues. Don't expect to be moving up the ladder within 10 years. Like you got to really just put your time in. Um, which if I'm being honest, is something I've now learned is not it's not. It's an old-fashioned way of thinking. It's a good way to run the chef industry to have all these young guys coming up. And mentorship is great, but uh, it's a bit extreme, you know. Like yeah, I mean, and it's yeah.
1: self-perpetuating in many in many careers. Like, it's the same way with uh, with doctors, right? It's like I had to go through ten years of training and sleep in brim closets in the hospital. So like, you should do that too, right? Like, if anyone does that, they feel like anyone that comes after them should also have that experience. You know to like be part of the club so it's it's hard to overhaul those systems (laughs) if they are (laughs) a little extreme yeah no totally
2: it's uh and back to the kitchen culture thing like especially i worked in london so i worked at um a restaurant called the fat duck which has the three (laughs) michelin stars i was 22 i was living in whistler working at the fairmont chateau whistler which was great i actually lived there for 10 months and worked for them and learned loads and then I was just on the internet one day and on the fat duck website, there's a spot where you can click to apply. So I did it and I emailed them and I sent them my resume and a couple weeks later they said, come back. They said, you should come. We'd love to have you. Um, and cause I was a dual citizen, they were able to pay me very poorly, but they paid me, which was great. And, uh, I spent a month there and the fat duck has had three Michelin stars, I think for around 15 years. Um, so that was, I mean, that was 17 hours a day, six days a week.
1: Wow, 17. <laughs> so your, your your life was only cooking and sleeping.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, cooking, sleeping, and resting would be the next, you know, when well, you're not right, sleeping, right. you're just resting, <laughs> another form of rest. It was full on. And those guys, like, man, you you haven't seen commitment and passion until you've seen those guys. Like, it's absolutely insane. Um Yeah, just that high level of perfection. And Heston Blumenthal, the owner of the Fat Duck, has, I think he's at four restaurants now, but he has another restaurant in London called Dinner by Heston, which I believe is also a three-star. But these Michelin inspectors, when they inspect these restaurants, I mean, it is extreme. You know, they could maybe get five or six courses into the meal and maybe they'll take a teaspoon and maybe they'll place it under their chair, right? And if if that teaspoon doesn't get noticed by the end of the dinner service then the front of house staff has essentially failed in, in performing a perfect you know you would never be a three star if something was out of place like that for the whole <laughs> of the service you know what i mean
0: that's wow. that's a whole nother level of intensity <laughs> i mean that must have been i mean that's just shocking to hear about what was it like when you first started working in that environment and you know like you mentioned like learning the ropes and after like having this background learning like the what was that like were expectations and reality kind of like come together and clash what was just like what was that like
2: to be honest when i went to fat duck i had done so much research and like seven or eight years of dreaming of when i was younger 14 15 i'd always heard of the fat duck and like in my mind i just idolized it at this you know this if you can work there then you have kind of made it that 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 would be the place and when i got there Like, it was so bizarre, but it was like, wow, like, this is exactly what I expected. Everybody has their head down. Nobody's talking unless it's about the work that we're doing. There's no chatter, right? There's no uh, music. There's no swearing. There's no chaos. There's no unorganization. Everything is just running smooth. Um, Every recipe is so exact to the milligram, you know? So if I needed you to make a sauce... I mean, if I'm being honest, a lot of the stuff that those guys were doing at Fat Duck, literally anybody could do in terms of actually producing the product, in terms of following the recipe, putting X, Y, and Z in the blender, blending it up, and putting it into vacuum bags, because they've done six to six months to two years of experimental research to create these recipes that they know are going to be three Michelin star level. Um, so if I'm being honest, after the month I was there, they offered me a position to stay on as a commie cook, which is the lowest level above a stage, which is what I was when I first entered. And I thought about it and like who, you know, who would say no to a three Michelin star job offer. But everything I loved about cooking wasn't what they were doing there. They were being scientists. They were, they had procedures and they went through them and they had results and those results happened to be really, really tasty. Um, and they had it down to an exact science I mean, the way a lot of people on earth like to cook and the way that I like to cook is just from my experiences and from my passion and from my love and from not measuring things exactly and doing a bit of this and a bit of that and something that this guy showed you and something that guy showed you and kind of making it come together. So it wasn't for me, but definitely learned a lot working in that environment.
1: Well, that's interesting that it wasn't disheartening, like, because you said like for all these years you had held them up on this pedestal and then like you had, you, you sort of met your idols in a way. And even though it wasn't the way of cooking you love, you were still able to like kind of be like, okay, I still want to do this, but just in a different, different setting.
2: Totally. And there were, yeah, it's kind of funny that, Hey, like I, I had idolized it so much. And when I got there, yeah, it was everything I expected, but totally just wasn't the right fit. Those It's like military style in terms of cleanliness, in terms of, you know, just the way they're spatially aware throughout the kitchen, everything's done and so calm. And now when I cook even at lodges or when I went back to Lake O'Hara, all that rubbed off where I, I'm never, I never get too stressed and everything's pretty calm. I'm insanely anal about cleanliness just from working in that environment. Yeah. It's yeah, just, it just rubs imagine. off on you and you see just a little tiny speck
1: on a counter and I just can't can't not wipe it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing how, like, I notice this, like, every, every year I get older. It's like every job you've worked, you find, like, artifacts of that in your life. And sometimes I find myself questioning. It's like, oh, well, like, maybe I should have stayed in that route then because it seems I have all these useful skills from it. But I think it's more of a fact of, like, no, it's just, like, you have all these different valuable experiences that sort of, like, form you throughout your life. And the ability to draw on all those is is great. But it doesn't necessarily mean that like you should have just doubled, tripled down on that one thing that had like certain positive characteristics.
2: Yeah, no, totally. I think that there's a couple of routes that people go in the cooking world. A lot of people will tell you, get a, get, get a job, as a, a commie cook right at the bottom. Stay there for two or three years, work your way up and learn everything you can. That I think is really, really good advice. Like for anything, for carpentry or anything, get under a good mentor and learn a lot from them. But the way I kind of viewed it was, why not get, like, you could either work for one chef for one year, or for 12 chefs over the course of a year, one month each, which one would you learn more, right? Maybe with the one chef over a year, you'd get way more in-depth, but with those 12 chefs over one month each, you're going to learn, I mean, it's going to be crazy. You're going to be exposed to a lot of different, you know, opinions and experiences and cooking styles. So... Not that I did that one month, but I really hopped around. I really didn't right. keep a job for more than three or four months. Because after three or four months, I felt like if I was on Garmanger or whatever section I was on on the kitchen, within three or four months, I really felt like you could learn it thoroughly. And then it was just time to move on. And I wasn't waiting around, really, for anyone. So,
1: I guess it's a big benefit as well, of like the seasonal lodge work. It's like a certain tourist season will only be a few months, right? I mean, unless you have like a year-round lodge that just does it all.
2: Yeah, no, totally. That's really helped, and that was where Lake O'Hare was so benefit beneficial for me because I would work there for four months, and then I would have you know eight months off to travel and work in other places, and that's really helped me kind of be able to start my own business now through having lots of different experiences younger on or lo- earlier on, I guess.
0: Yeah. And and the cool thing about like you having going out and try, having all these different types of experiences and learning from different types of chefs and learning from different types of kitchen settings that once you got to the college, did you did you feel that was like you had more freedom to kind of like experiment or, you know, be a bit more creative with some of the dishes or or, you know, different types of workflows, that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, totally. I do. I think I do. I think I have kind of a unique style, just kind of a mesh of the past experiences. When I cook with a lot of other, you know, really great chefs, they, you can tell they kind of have a style as I feel like I'm a little bit more all over the place, which maybe Uh isn't such a good thing. But I mean, I just, yeah, I feel like I, I have no restrictions. So maybe I cook some things better or worse, but I definitely am pretty open to flavors and whatever technique.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. And you can try, experiment with different types of like, you know, recipes or ingredients, that sort of thing that must be like. Like once you get to that level of learning, once you have all those experiences, that must be so much fun.
2: Totally. I would assume it's kind of like morally your work, like creating and a lot of skills are transferable when it comes to making and building.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I, what you said resonates me with like three or four months of doing a, a technical skill. You sort of get a sense from it and and you know how to do it. Like you obviously in any job you can optimize and develop relationships and everything else. But I think in a lot of the things I do, it's being able to make connections and figure out like different ways of execution and being able to draw from like a variety of crafts and skills is really, really beneficial for that. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons like, I mean, if I wanted to be like a woodworker, I probably wouldn't be a very good worker woodworker from my current setting because like <laughs> I could I would be a little limited by like space and noise production, but the <laughs> fact that I just want to like create interesting original inventive things, I can sort of like draw on all these different things and like optimize it for my space, and the more various experiences I get, just the better I will be at that um, yeah, I mean th- I think that's an interesting segue as well, like i it sounds like getting a variety of experiences like that being able to work in a mishmash of styles would set you up pretty well to work as a private chef because i imagine if someone wants to hire you to create this like curated experience in their own home or in i don't know some venue that they rented like they have a vision and you need to be a little malleable or i mean i don't know like how much. I mean that's another question altogether. We can we can get into that, like how much of it is your own vision versus their vision. But I imagine that that philosophy of being able to kind of be a mishmash and create all these different moods would be very valuable. Being a private chef,
2: yeah, totally. Especially when you get into higher end clients or even just weddings or things that have perhaps a larger price tag, Um, your clients can get yeah pretty pretty specific on what they want. Um, a kind of random tangent that just came to mind was when I moved, when we moved from England to Cochrane when I was seven, um, of course you can speak when you're seven and I had a fully British accent and my parents have a British accent and my brother, I mean, when we're all together, you would think I'm adopted just because they're all talking like British people drinking tea. And I'm kind of, (laughs) I just get, I get categorized for sure more as a Canadian and I definitely identify when people ask where I'm from, I'm for sure going to say Canada. Um, But when I, moved here when I was seven, my parents tell the story that I was in, I was in school for three months. And within three months, I lost my accent completely. Like it was completely (laughs) gone. I think through a combination of perhaps teasing, and perhaps wanting to fit in in a new place, I learned very quickly to adapt. And I learned very quickly that I could adapt to, to different people. Um, which now that I'm older, I'm kind of looking back and realizing this, that I can be super personable and I can chat with a lot of different people about a lot of different things, which I really believe came just from that childhood experience of being in a new place, being a British boy and all these kids in Cochrane, you know, which is a small town, small conservative town in Alberta, had never really, you know, there wasn't any other immigrants in the school. So it was like, where are you from again? Like... So like you said, with the private chef thing, you, you really need to adapt to each client. And even I'll show up to the client's house sometimes, um, having never met them or even talk to them on the phone sometimes. And kind of in in that moment, when they open that door, I'm going to decide, okay, like, I want to relate and connect with this person on a personal level. So I need to kind of get a good read of them pretty quick here. So if they're where, you know, if they're clearly a business owner, maybe I'm going to talk to them a little differently than if they're a cowboy and they're a little bit more relaxed, right? Sometimes they'll offer you a glass of wine or some of their joint or their cigarette or whatever. Or sometimes they don't even want to talk to you because you're the cook and you're just here to work. So, which is fine by me too. I just appreciate the work. So, either way, definitely learn to adapt has been really helpful.
0: Huh. It's interesting learning about how how being chameleon and like different sort of settings gives you, you know, you know you're kind of like adapting to new environments, especially when it comes to private catering because like those must be so – because I have a friend who used to do private catering and she used to make, you know, lots of money by doing that. And yeah, it's such a different flow I can imagine from working in a kitchen setting where you mentioned where you were learning all these experiences. Like you mentioned, it was like a scientific method to the way they're creating what's it like compared to like doing private catering events where is there like a certain expectation like a, or a menu that you have to follow or what's that like?
2: Yeah, it really kind of depends on the client, but I'll typically send out like a sample menu. Well, usually either they'll know exactly what they want and in their first email, they'll tell you exactly what they want. But they're like, we want fried chicken and Caesar salad. It's our wedding. <laughs> we know we want that. And I'm like, okay, no problem. We can do that. That makes it actually really easy but you'll get the other people that email you and say we don't know what we want what like what can you do and then i'll send them a very i mean even if you go on my website it's very broad it's like barbecue party or charcuterie board or seven course tasting yeah. menu or like there's just a lot of aspects and just from having a you know a few different experiences um
0: yeah it's a very impressive array that you have in terms of portfolio yeah thanks
2: yeah it's i just want to appeal to everybody and Some people – I mean, I don't really – what I do, I wouldn't really call it catering more as personal chef because I work alone usually. So, uh, I'll usually cook for like – well, usually up to 20 people would be at a maximum. But if you wanted it to be nice, like around 8 or 10 would be ideal because one thing I really – I mean, here's the main difference between working at a restaurant and being a private chef is you're not just – the chef, you're the chef and the waiter and the Somali and the marketing mm. team. You're the business owner, you know, <laughs> you're at everything to do with business and everything to do with hospitality. You're every role in one. So I make the food, I plate it up. Sometimes I take off my apron and I bring it over to the table, you know, and I describe the dish and I run back and I get the next <laughs> course ready. So it's, you gotta be pretty, and I have no kind of front of house experience. Like I've obviously been around a lot of servers and understand, what makes a good server, but it was really kind of like, how do you pour the wine again? Like, I don't really remember. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's something we would kind of joke about at O'Hara is like, so like I was on the the maintenance team and we had like a medium amount of guest interaction. It's like, if they had like a clogged toilet, like we'd be in there in their living space. So it could be very intimate at times, but like, we didn't have like the same, uh, the same personable choreographed interactions as, like the servers had, for example, but we had like we had a lot of like bumping into them or needing to sort of like invade their space. But it was always interesting talking to like the kitchen staff there, where it was like they could have zero guest interaction, and it's like, oh wow, like you guys don't. It, it's just a very very different experience if you're only working in a kitchen. Like you might never see the people who are eating your food, which I, I would imagine could be pretty strange. And I, I think I might think plays into some of the, like the traditional animosity between like servers and cooks. Because it's like you have these like two very, very different expectations and you're not seeing the reactions. You're only sort of like hearing them secondhand.
2: Totally. Man, a good example of that would be when I worked in Whistler at the Fairmont Hotel there. I worked in banquets. That was the department. I'd never worked in banquets before. I'd only ever done small. So we were doing, like I, I'm not kidding you, we were doing 800-person plated dinners. So three-course plated. You know, and everybody's getting their food within 20 minutes. So you've got a conveyor belt with plates going down and then all the food, so much organization. Someone's putting down potatoes, someone's putting down carrots, someone's putting down beef. It's going in a hot box and it's getting wheeled up the kitchen. I just spent 10 hours preparing this, you know, being a part of this team that's created this dinner. And the food literally just goes out the door and down the hallway and I never see it again. There is no connection to the customer. I don't even know who, like, I'll do an 800, you know, you do a 500 person breakfast and like, I don't even know who, who the business is, like who, what company has paid for this. I had no idea, which I'm not a huge fan of. And now, um, I do a lot of, I, like you said, I worked at Lake O'Hara, but now I work for a lot of different backcountry lodges. Um, and something that is so important is knowing who I'm cooking for. And one of the main reasons I like the backcountry work is because in the winter, it's always skiers. Not that, like, you know, I only like skiers, but it's a type of person. They're in it for the lifestyle. They're fit and healthy. They're generally, you know, pretty easygoing, level-headed people. So I really I really enjoy cooking for that, you know, just a client that I can connect with immediately because we both like to ski. So that immediately there's a connection there.
1: Yeah. It kind of... I think in some ways it like it's a callback to what we were talking about earlier with like the traditional Michelin star European restaurants where it's like I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there's this status quo in cooking of like the chef is not even seen or heard, but just like producing food in the kitchen and the front of the house is this entirely separate thing. And now we live in a time where it seems like cooking is a lot sexier and like people want like a a relationship with it and they want to see it and they want, like people enjoy cooking, you know, like the open concept kitchen, right? Like that is, it used to be that kitchens were closed off for the servants and the cooks, but now like cooking is a more, I don't know, accepted part of modern life and like a well-rounded individual. So, um, it's interesting that like your career has also kind of spanned the cultural uh, you know, Development of how cooking relates to how people consume it.
2: No, totally. It's been a change in the industry and and it just makes sense. People want to feel connected, right? People want to feel connected to what they're eating. They want to feel connected for who they're working for and what they're cooking. Um, And even to the extreme, people want to see their, they want to know not only where they're, you know, who's cooking the food and even maybe see their face, but where did it come from? What farm is it from? You know, where did the beef come from? Is it Alberta or is it from somewhere else? Or, you know, yeah, even more so, for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, people are really crave those sort of personal connections now. Like, one that's, like, very evident just from look at your website and your social media profiles. Like, you know, you get a full sense of, like, as to who you are and the food that you make and your experiences that you've had. Like, it's such an interesting contrast from what you described, where, you know, the chef makes the food, or goes out, they never see them. Whereas now it's so much, especially if you're doing – uh, being a private chef and doing these personal events. It's so much about like putting yourself out there and saying, this is not just the food I cook, but this is like, you know, how I make it, this is why I do it, this is how it looks or how I make it look. That's really impressive. And just, yeah, like, and that's something that you seem to be like very comfortable with is like just, you know, putting your, tying your identity to your work, to your to your chef skills.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's been a huge learning curve to do that that side of it like like morally for you if you were to create all the cool things you make but didn't document any of it um well that would change a lot of things but how would like deciding how you want to document what you're doing so for me cooking i've been cooking for a long time i would i was off all social media for four years instagram facebook twitter i was into it and then i was off it for four years I thought it was evil. Mm. I thought it was the devil. Uh, I still kind of have that opinion. But when I rejoined it with my business, so I, when I got back to social media, it wasn't for my personal life. It was purely for business. That was the only way I wanted to treat it, um, which you learn quickly. You need, to be pers- you need to be personal through your business Instagram. Otherwise, you're just, you know, another business on there, right? But I've seen it in a completely different light. Um, but, yeah, it's a process learning, you know how do i want people to know what i'm doing on the internet and how do you want to portray that brand i guess is the word that's tossed around a lot personal brand and building that and that has just been so so new and i'm still learning i mean i'm still new it's still like the first year or two of doing this so i'm still like (laughs) and i'll like have a post on instagram where I, th- I think about it so much. Like, is this what I want to be portrayed as my personal brand? Like, is this the kind of clients I want to attract? So, I mean, man, it's, yeah, it's exhausting.
1: It is. And I agree. I do have a similar, like love, hate relationship with social media, like in many aspects of it, like really irk me. Um, and I think, any it's funny like even the terms like personal brand and i'm about to say the word content creator which i don't really love because it, it just mm-hmm. it's like the term influencer mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's these things <laughs> that i'm like technically doing but i don't want to call myself um just because of like the you know like the logan paul connotations they have or whatever but um um you know like it's a it's very powerful when it's done well and like i think maybe it's the fact that like there's a lot of it that's not being done well that makes it sort of cringy in some ways. It, like makes you like not really want to associate yourself with like the social media world as a whole. Um, But there are like so many opportunities out there, and like you said before, like how would my work change if I wasn't sharing it? And I've I've, I've talked about that with some people before. Like I I think I'm lucky in that like I enjoy I, I like doing things that are unique that might not be like the most hmm. Okay, I'm not I'm gonna step back from that. I don't know what adjective I want to use. But I like doing things that are unique and that might have like a high visual or interesting impact, which tend to work well for sharing. Because no one wants to see like the same coffee table built 20 times. People want to see something that is like new and inventive and exciting. And and that's the sort of thing I'm into. So like it, it's a good space uh to be in. In the same way that like if you were just I don't know, like if you were just like obsessed with milling the best flour in the world and that was what you wanted to do it's like that might not be the most best thing to develop a personal chef business you know that you're marketing through instagram whereas if you're creating like these very visually impactful like charcuterie boards that are tailored to like a mountaintop experience right it's like it all kind of like it fits very well into the social media world so i think that is i think that plays into like your relationship with it I'm sure like before when you kind of signed off of social media, it's like the things that you were doing, like didn't really fit into the world or maybe they did, but maybe you just, you just needed some time away. Um, but if something is very experiential, you know, like that's what people want to see. Instagram stories, right. People want to see experiences a lot more than just like, you know, a random picture, at least a lot of the time.
0: It's, it's interesting hearing both of your perspectives on this because like I do filmmaking as my own, creative hobby, but I work in marketing as my day job. So take it from me as someone who works in marketing, seeing what you guys do with social media, it's very, very good. It's very impressive. <laughs> because like you said, like it has to feel personal, it has to feel authentic to you. You know, it's a strange dichotomy, I guess, but the more personal something is for you that you share, the more accessible it is to others because they can i don't know if it's just subconsciously but people can see what's authentic and what is not or when you're trying too hard to be something that you're not and you know yeah. people can see that now i think it's because we're so inundated with so many messages and like you mentioned like people who are trying to be influencers rather than someone who's just authentically sharing their work that sort of thing so and it's interesting what you guys said because like i'm <laughs> like, I'm not the biggest fan or user of social media for my personal use, but, like, seeing as they're, like, working my job, seeing how I could potentially transfer some of those skills into, like, as current, like, film, short film or documentary that I'm working on now and seeing where that could lead to down the line. But, you know, who knows? Because, like, yeah, because I always find, like, because I don't want to go on and, like, comparing myself or, like, wondering, like, oh, this person's at this stage and here I am trying to, like, make something. It's interesting because, like, it morally makes all these incredible videos, but here I am and spending, like, weeks and months at a time trying to prepare a documentary. And you're seeing that. It's just like, well, am I really advancing if he's put out, like, you know, 10 or 12 or 20 great videos in this last few months, you know? It's a yeah. weird, but it's a, I think it's just being able to understand where you're at and just feeling, having faith in where you're at and as you're progressing. And just to go on this idea of like the emphasis of the visual and what the visual means, especially uh, for you, Chris, because there's such a heavy significance on having good visuals and presentations, especially for food. Like, you know, like you show on your Instagram, on your website, Um, just how, significant or how much pressure do you feel that there isn't like having, you know, the right look of the food and being able to share that. Like on your Instagram, you have the, you know, these nice colorful plates with this nice wooden table backdrop, you know, that really pops very well because I know people are just, you know, friends or people when they're looking at a, webs- uh, a website, uh website for a restaurant or something, they're not necessarily going right to the menu or to the reviews. They're like, what does the food look like? And you know, just looking at what the food looks like, not really considering what's, what it is or what's about it. What does it look like? So how is that, like you mentioned, like now you're doing all this marketing yourself, how do you navigate that, that space?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's so funny with food because I mean, you don't eat with your eyes. You don't like, you don't taste, you don't taste with your eyes. You do eat with your eyes, but you don't taste with your eyes. It has nothing to do with flavor. (laughs) It has nothing, nothing to do with flavor. And it's just photography. It's just product photography
0: when it boils down to it. Like that's exactly what it is. It's like someone taking the paintbrush or like the McDonald's
1: bun or something. You know, it's a great case in point in that, and this is a bit of a hot take, is many vegan restaurants. I feel like a lot of their food looks fantastic, but I have been so underwhelmed by a lot of vegan dishes that it's just like, oh, the substance is not there. Sorry, go on. I just wanted to insert that.
2: (laughs) I mean, and just the reality is that like I'm probably going to take a picture of like probably 5% Of the amount of food. Well, again, it depends where I'm working. Right now, I'm working at Backcountry Lodges. So I do breakfast, lunch, snack, and dinner for about 20 people every day. Okay? We eat eggs every day. I don't take pictures of those eggs every day and put them on my portfolio and say, Look, I can cook eggs for 14 days in a row. Um, it's, it's 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 not really what you want to see, you know? A lot of people eat eggs every day. It's not interesting. But when I do a nice charcuterie platter... Um, that's worthy of a photo you know um, of course if you could if you could taste Instagram posts I would post everything but you can't you can't taste them you can only look at them and and you know oatmeal it, it just doesn't look good unless I'm gonna spend 20 minutes putting it in, in the right light and adding some raspberries and a spoon and a fork but that's not I'm not a food magazine that's not what I do right so I'm not gonna post anything that I'm not genuinely cooking for clients or something that they can eat so Yeah, post
1: less. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. No, I think, and I think it also sort of like plays into the like real recognizing real sort of aspect of like social media, right? It's like it's it's so it's so clear when something is a little more like less in the moment, more they spent two hours making the Big Mac. And the tomato and the sauce mm-hmm. and the lettuce all line up really, really, really perfectly. Yeah.
0: Um, the superficiality of it in a way. You know, yeah. it's like it's like like you mentioned, like you can't taste it, you know, you can't taste it with your eyes. Like something could, you know, be perfectly layered and the colors are bright and or they edited the colors to pop out a bit more, but you know, you don't know until you try it. You know, you have to be willing to go out and try different things regardless of, you know I mean of course presentation matters on the plate, of course, but if just because it doesn't have the prettiest Instagram profile doesn't mean, you know, the food's not amazing.
1: But, you know, some, one of the really funny things about food is that, like, it's so evocative that I'm sure you don't even necessarily need to take the prettiest picture of a bowl of oatmeal to make someone want to eat the oatmeal because people have memories from their childhood of, like, eating oatmeal on a cold day. So if you are able to, like, convey that emotion through you know more overall scenery maybe less mm. just like the bowl of oatmeal but then everything mm. else And there are some like interesting opportunities there yeah. to you know sell oatmeal a little easier <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah that's something i'm learning incredibly well i've learned i think but now that i've started the dog tooth chocolate which we can talk about more but um uh, I've just learned quickly that as soon as you associate the chocolate bars with, so I'm living in Golden, right? Big ski town, hiking, climbing, biking. As soon as you associate the chocolate bar brand with skiing or with mountain biking or with rock climbing, it just makes it that much more interesting, right? It's not just a piece of chocolate. It's a piece of chocolate that people take skiing, and that makes it way different. It
0: makes it a different product, really, I think.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I think many marketers would agree with you. Okay. So let's, yeah. let's dive ex- into that.
0: Ex- except for the barons of the oatmeal industry who are listening right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Those poor guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, let's dive into dog tooth. So how did, how did that all come about?
2: Well, when I decided that I wanted to be a personal chef, basically, um, was when I was bouncing around a few different backcountry lodges, hiking and skiing. And I realized I could do this as a freelance, and I realized that in my off season I had a lot of time to, to to cook for weddings and that sort of thing. And I saw it as quite lucrative to be honest and really enjoy and work that I enjoy doing. So I started the first thing I really figured out I needed to do was learn about business because I have no experience in business at all, no knowledge. So podcasts, books website every you know literally just learn from the ground up which is amazing these days you can do everything on your laptop so i just learn and study and one thing i learned quickly was it makes a lot of sense that if you're in customer service to also have a product so if you're in you know like if you're giving out massages that's great you're only going to get paid when you sell a massage but if you sell massage oil as well now all of a sudden you know it just makes a lot of sense so i was thinking of a product that i could when i go and a private event i can be like hey also i sell artisan jam and i'm not kidding that was my that was kind of what i was genuinely thinking about at the beginning was (laughs) preserves right so like a fig preserve artisan small batch you can buy them online or you can buy them in person and that's kind of it um and that's still a cool idea but the problem i hit there was the jars the jars are expensive you got to transport the glass and the lids And it was just going to be a bit of a process. So anyway, I kind of put that on the back burner, kept doing my personal chefing, but keeping that kind of in the back of my mind. Then I had a friend, an old friend, actually that worked at Lake O'Hara in 2014, Scott Ruge. He moved from Ontario to Invermere, which is very close to here. And he was telling me that he had this idea to make chocolate bonbons, which are like small decorative chocolate truffles, usually painted with a cocoa butter paint. And they're usually like, I don't know, like 30 bucks for 12 or something like a very small, but they're kind of like high end. So I went over to his place in Invermere. We made some, we spent a few nights making some. And I thought this is really, really cool. They're tasty. Everybody loves chocolate. I love chocolate. Like I'm a huge fan immediately. So it's a product that I can really stand behind. Came back thinking about it a bit more and then, and then but the same bonbon molds, that he had bought the stack company makes chocolate bar molds that you can decorate the same way with the cocoa butter paint and i mean that was it basically i was like bonbons are great i think chocolate bars are going to be the way to go in the ski town because you're going to take a chocolate bar skiing um or literally anywhere you know like it's it, it has no limits really so i had always been interested in that um and i think it's just going to be a fun kind of pursuit Uh, I'm way more in it just because I think it's going to be a cool journey. Um, I'm hoping potentially looking into being a nonprofit or maybe just being a small business that gives a lot back, but collaborating with local artists and athletes and talent that maybe would want to get some promotion, kind of like you guys are doing through your podcast, but we could maybe fund projects or things like that and be a little bit more for the community rather than just people that sell taco bars and get money like that's cool but it would be just i mean, you know money's not like a huge issue where i'm living right now and the job i have that's fine but it would be fun just to take on a bit more of a community-based project so dogtooth is the name of the mountain range here in golden um dogtooth range and there's the climbing gym here is a dogtooth climbing gym so i didn't want to totally rip off their name but i just i like the name and it stuck Um, and then I started making bars and I didn't really have any business plan or anything. I was like, well, I'll just make an Instagram account and post some photos. So I did that. And then the response was insane. I had like a hundred DMS in a week, people literally just sending me a message. Hey, where can I buy this? Okay, well I need to figure out how to do that and then we'll get you some. So, yeah.
0: And So, you had no prior experience making chocolate whatsoever, right? Zero. So, what was that process like, just diving into it, learning as you went, and just, yeah, and all the joy and chaos, I guess, came with it?
2: So, right now, Dogtooth isn't making their own chocolate from Cocoa Bean. We're buying chocolate product from, right now, we're buying some from Belgium, Fair Trade Organic Chocolate. That's just really high quality. Um. I would love to make our own chocolate, like from the cocoa bean, you know, to the chocolate product. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm a little bit back and forth about it because typically when small businesses do that, they end up with a nice artisan product um, and they'll have a lot of that one product. But I, I'm more interested in the idea of using lots of multiple different kinds of really good chocolate, different brands different really good product and then um, repackaging and we're also flavoring them and decorating them um, kind of under our own umbrella. But even just that process has been like just, I mean, you just fake it till you make it right. Like you just, you just start, you just start doing it. And then when it starts working, I guess you've started to figure it out. So I guess (laughs) it's working now (laughs) and it's like, Oh, where can I buy your chocolate? I'm like, Oh, Oh, are we ready to sell? Okay, yeah. If you're ready to buy, then we're ready to sell. Like now, I just gotta go learn that, and then I'll come back, and then and chocolate. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's that's cool that you were able to recognize early on that like you didn't wanna you didn't wanna zero in on the like making it right from the cocoa beans at the start because like that was not the mission at the start. I think that's a really easy trap to fall into to like to get like really zeroed into the details. Um, I I was kind of thinking about this today and like in some like this sort of like venture I'm thinking about and like I was visualizing it as like I'm constantly circling and gradually spiraling in. Like trying at the first pass not to go super deep into anything so I don't lose sight of, you know, the overall goal. And then gradually like the focus narrows until you've you've sort of found it. Totally. That's cool. Yeah. And I think I think that has like its pros and its cons. Like I know some people like we were talking about this last week with Kevin, right like like mm-hmm. from day one, he wanted his YouTube channel to look professional, so like he had to dive down the rabbit hole of professional videography. I mean, of course, you already had that experience, but like if you can if you can operate on the premise of like incremental improvement, um, I think it allows you to to sort of like not lose sight of the final goal,
0: yeah. Especially considering, like, he's doing, like, a photography and videography, like, online classes. So, like, I had to really, right. really that's look sharp. You know, there's, like, an extra pressure of, like, you know, it has to yeah. look, you know, exactly perfect 4K. But, yeah, no, it, absolutely. It's always about incremental, like, advances. And even though, you, like, that's how I've kind of, like, fell into, like, what I was doing. Like, I didn't, it's, a, it's such an interesting learning curve when you go out and you're doing something or directing a short film. You know, you're in school and there's no real you know, guidebook. You just kind of come in. You just like you know, do a shot here, do a shot there. But like, it's also more about like problem solving. Okay, this has gone wrong. The light went out. What are we gonna do? This happened with. <laughs> it's funny because it happened with your, uh, with your interview more. Like really, when we we're doing the documentary for my master's thesis. Like, like we were supposed to shoot in the in the certain room on the library campus at Ryerson. Then when we got there, we looked at it. we looked at it in the camera lens. We're like, yeah, this looks like garbage. You know, it's a small confined space. We can't use this. You're about to show up in 20 minutes and we don't really have another space. So what do we do? So we just took a few, walked around, found a nice space with like this nice natural light coming on where the sun was. So we put you there, you know, filmed, you arrived, it went off perfectly. It was the best interview we had that day. So, so, but it's just like, it's understanding kind of like moment to moment and always being willing to like change and adapt when you're in those sort of positions and knowing how to, how to gradually advance that way.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I can imagine it's very similar to like, you know, the chocolate business as well. Totally. And honestly, I don't think that, you know, this chocolate business kind of
2: grew out of me having an interest in business and going the private chef route. Uh, I would be, I I really truly don't believe that this is, this isn't anywhere even close to the beginning of the process for Jogtooth. I don't know if I'm going to run a a chocolate business for the next 30 years or whether this is going to just keep evolving and, potentially turning into something, you know, different than chocolate. But I think a big takeaway that I've gotten recently just from my life experiences has been not looking for something to be passionate about, but just finding you know, bringing your passion to things that you're doing. Right. So I, I, I used to be so focused on this idea that, that everybody in the world spent their life looking for their passion and I was so lucky because I got it when I was thirteen, and I knew it was cooking. And I was like, "Man, like I'm so lucky! I found my passion. This is something everybody just spends their whole life looking for. Maybe they get it early, maybe they get it late. Um, right? But what i recently learned is that what I what I the passion I found wasn't for cooking. It was just this enthusiasm that I can bring to things. So when I go skiing, I'm just, I just bring my passion to that. You know, I never really had a prior. A passion for skiing until a couple years ago when I got work and they wanted me to ski and I was like well I'm gonna enjoy this as much as possible so a year ago I wasn't passionate about having a chocolate business but as the process has continued I've put my passion there and I think it will just continue to you know it'll just continue to go on to who knows what I have no idea no idea
0: Yeah, well, that's wonderful to to hear, though, because, like, you know, it's a lot more liberating when you can just, you know, put your passion to all these different outlets and, like, not just on this one, putting all your eggs in one basket, Mm -hmm. so to speak, where your passion also has to be your career and there's all that pressure that comes with it, whereas here you can just, you know, have it more widespread and being able to just enjoy life and bring that passion, like you mentioned, to all these different facets of your life. It's a smart way of going about it.
2: Yeah, it's been It's been a good journey so far, so we'll see. (laughs)
0: Exactly.
1: Chris, um, I had a question. This is is something that Eden and I were talking about over dinner one night because we both really like cooking. Um, It's one of the things that brought us together early on in a relationship. It was actually when she was making – we were living in the same building our first year of university, and she was making latkes for Hanukkah. And I walked by her door, and I corrected her latke-making technique and i took over from her which is a great way to start a relationship to criticize their cooking um and we were trying to figure out like do we have a favorite thing to cook like do i have a favorite dish to cook and i found it very difficult to like choose one because i it was just a much more difficult question than i expected so i'll pass the question on to you maybe you have a more better way of thinking about it do you have a favorite thing to cook
2: that is probably the number one question that I get asked by my clients and by my guests. It's like just it's such a normal question and yet I have never prepared an answer. I'm always like <laughs> oh, uh, oh, I always get awkward about it. But the truth is is like I know. the truth is no, no, I don't have a favorite thing to cook. Uh, yeah. I would say I go through phases. So usually when I'm learning something new, I'm like really into that thing. So like the last year or two, I've been really into making bread. Just because learning Mm. how to make bread is such a process. And the only way to learn how to make bread and be a breadmaster would be to make like a thousand loaves of bread. You couldn't just learn in a book. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. So when people ask me, I'm like, yeah, I'm like really into making bread because I'm still trying to figure it out. But at one point it was like soup. I was so into making soup and like building flavor in a pot. Um, Not that I've like mastered that, but I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on it. So whatever is challenging me is what I'm
0: the most interested in pursuing. I think
1: that's cool. It's a good way of thinking about it. I like that. Yeah.
0: I was, I was, I was uh, at least not oatmeal. So that's a good thing, but (laughs) (laughs) But bread bread's like an interesting one because like I follow my grandmother's recipe to like to a T. But even like with her recipe there like I can't nearly make it as good as my mother can because she has those years of making it. You know, there's this process like you like there is I guess there is like a method to the madness like what you mentioned before where there's a reason why it's in the why why it is that way the way that it is. But you know, still still striving for
2: it. <laughs> yeah, and recently. I think last, last winter I did a large season and I was focused on making the food that I wanted to make. Um, and this winter or last summer, I kind of changed my mindset a little bit and I realized that actually it's my job to make the food that the guests that I'm cooking before want to eat. It, has, it actually has nothing to do with me. Um, I'm going to be the, you know, the communicator from the ingredient to the dish or whatever it is. But, um, the more i think about what the guests want to eat the it, it only makes the food better right like it, it doesn't affect, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what i want to cook i can put my own unique twist on things and use my character and show you know show them a little style through my food but yeah you got to cook what your guests want to eat bottom line so at some of the lodges so i'm a, again i think each lodge i go to i've worked at six different backcountry lodges and each lodge i go to i adapt the menu based on the clients so even the moment they get off that helicopter, you can tell, are they like some kind of more, you know, rural folk or are they more city folk? And how can I adapt this menu right, to yeah. kind of be for them? Right. Because if I only cook fancy Michelin food for city people, then when the local rural golden people come and they just kind of want, you know, lasagna or like shepherd's pie, um, they'll, you know, they won't appreciate it as much. So,
1: yeah, hmm. it reminds me of uh, the movie Ratatouille which I'm realizing now is, like, is is so spot on, right? It's yeah, like sometimes yeah, it that, that country home-style dish is just like the perfect thing. And it, it draws back to as well, it's like uh, evo- uh, evoking an emotion from someone's childhood.
2: Yeah. You know? exactly.
1: I'm sure if, if someone's co- coming in famished from a day of hiking and skiing, that, that that's only going to be even more powerful.
2: Oh man, yeah. The, best, yeah. the best way to cook for skiers is just go skiing all day and then come back and like, think, what do I want? Like I probably want mm. like nachos and beer or like, spoon, you know, <laughs> like I probably don't want some like fancy cheese and crackers. Although the cheese is really nice and expensive. I just want like orange cheese in my mouth,
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't want to have the thing where like you're really hungry and you like you eat the wrong thing too fast. And then you feel even worse. Like you want yeah. them to feel correct after they're really hungry and ate a big meal.
2: Yeah, no, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think on that, that's a, a good point to transition to what we're putting in the spotlight this week. Sound good? Sounds good to me. All right. Um, I'll kick it off. Mine has to do directly with cooking. Um, so in during the past year, during COVID, um, we were gifted a subscription to The New Yorker, which has like quickly become like the main thing I read because it's like you get one issue a week. Um, it's incredibly dense with writing, not in a bad way, but it's just, it's chock full of, of writing. Um, And so like it throughout the course of the week, I'll read all these like really fantastic articles. Then the next week, another one comes and it's like, I have just a constant supply of great writing. Um, And the food writing in it especially is very, very good. You know, like the food profiles, the restaurant profiles are amazing, but there is this longer form article in the most recent issue by Nick Palmgarten, and it's called a uh, "It's No Picnic," which is it's specifically about the plight of restaurants in New York City during uh, the pandemic. But it's not like a depressing article. It's just a very interesting sort of like retrospective on how dining has evolved throughout the pandemic. And one of the things I really liked about it is like it had this great comment on how when like outdoor dining was the new norm right at the beginning. Everyone was like it was this novelty and everyone was excited about it. And then as things started to become cold, it started to become this like, are we really gonna like sit outside in like freezing weather under this canopy with a propane heater that's too far away for an hour? Oh, I guess we are. Okay. That's what we're doing. And it, it's it it was a very I feel like it was a very well written piece about this like shared experience that we've all had while also sort of like analyzing, you know, like the changing landscape of these new york institutions that a lot of people thought would be around forever and you know they just adapted so it's it's a great article um i know the new yorker is like a paid subscription but i'm pretty sure you can still uh access individual articles online so i'll link it in the show notes um i would definitely recommend it it's a good read cool uh what about you ryan what is yours this week what is
0: mine this week? Uh, so i was just gonna say the New Yorker has great articles. So I have to check that one out. But I had someone else in mind that was gonna save for mine to the spotlight for this episode. But after everything we've been talking about, like it just got me thinking about like you know how food is so personal to us and what it means to us, and it got me thinking of Anthony Bourdain. The American Mm. chef who had uh, the shows and the books and like he he was such an interesting personality and it's tragic um, what happened with his death. But like he was such an interesting personality because he knew what food meant culturally and how it was such an essential element in bringing people together and sharing experiences. And I really loved his show um, Parts Unknown that was on CNN. Like, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not normal that, like, you know, when someone's in college and they're spending their Sunday nights watching this a food show on CNN. But that's why I was doing some nights because it was so interesting seeing him go to these little corners across America or even beyond in Europe and Canada. He did, like, two episodes, one in Newfoundland and one here in Quebec, which was really interesting. Um, just being able to he was, – he was really interesting uh, using, like, the documentary style of interviewing interesting people and different types of recipes and going through the history of what the food is and seeing the media. And, t- and talk about different issues relating to people in all these different places, even like the gritty places that you won't necessarily find uh, that were like, you know, there were five-star, whatever. It was really, yeah, just an interesting way yeah. of understanding what food means culturally and how it's so personal each and every one of us. Yeah, it was, uh, just check out all of his work, his books, his shows. Um, yeah, nothing like it. And just to remember what food it means to us personally. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. Thank you for my TED Talk.. No. Yep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Anthony Anthony Bourdain, I know it means a lot to a lot of cooks and, and everyone, but to a lot of. Cooks. He gave a voice. he gave a voice to the restaurant industry that didn't really have a voice, and yeah, super important guy for a lot of people. Awesome. Yeah, incredible. So my into the spotlight, there's two I want to mention. One, I'm sure you know. Um, you must have heard of Tim Ferriss at some point. Yes, yes. That man, I could not mention him. I listen to his podcast, every podcast that gets released, and I've read all his books. And that guy provides a lot of insight into a lot, gives a you know, asks a lot of interesting people questions that other people just don't ask, you know, morning routines, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing, super has been super transformative, honestly, for me.
1: I was listening to his uh, most recent episode today, the Tim Tim and Kev Kev
2: episode
1: 500. (laughs) There you go. That's awesome,
2: man. Yeah, he's a super inspirational guy and all his writing is just, yeah, his blogs and his writing is awesome. And the second one I want to bring into the spotlight, I don't know if you guys know much about the organization Protect Our Winners, POW. No. P-O-W, POW. So it's just an organization that is trying to um, uh, bring the winter sport basically community together, skiers, snowmobilers, snowboarders, and just kind of shine a light on our winner. We're losing our winners through climate change and that people that are active members in the community around here and around Golden, and there's a group in Golden and a group in Revelstoke and beyond, um, they're really doing a lot and raising a lot of money. And they sell cool shirts and hoodies and sweaters and stuff. And yeah, check it out. Protect our winners on Google. Cool. Awesome.
1: I will definitely link that in the show notes as well. Um, sweet. Chris, this has been an absolute pleasure. This was such a cool conversation and uh, thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks so much, Morley Ryan. It has been super fun.
1: Um, I of course will link all your stuff in the show notes, but for the auditorially inclined, you can find <laughs> Chris at chrisparnell.ca and on Instagram under chef, chef, Chris Parnell and dogtooth chocolate i think there's a dot in there yes there is um yeah chris is there anywhere else you want to direct people or those uh those are the spots
2: instagram's the spot for me these days so yep that's the spot
0: sweet awesome
1: well thanks once again and uh have a great rest of your night
0: yeah thanks you guys bye thanks guys bye see ya